Andrew Porter is the author of the short story collection The Theory of Light and Matter, which won the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction, the novel In Between Days, which was a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writer selection, and an indie-bound Indie Next selection, and the short story collection that disappeared, recently published in April of 2023. His books have been published in foreign editions in the UK and Australia and translated into numerous languages including French, Spanish, Dutch, Bulgarian, and Korean. He is also the recipient of a Pushcart Prize and fellowships from the James Mishner Copernicus Foundation and many, many more. He's currently a professor of English and director of creative writing program at Trinity University in San Antonio. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Things are good. It's finally getting cool in this part of the country, which is nice. It's it's always a delight when it when it gets cold here. Are you? Uh, do you have to be a, San, a Spurs fan? Are you a basketball fan? I am. I mean, you kind of do have to be a Spurs fan in San Antonio. Um, I wasn't at first when I first moved here, and I actually they it was when they were winning, you know, some of their championships, and I kind of wish that I was, but um, I was kind of not that interested. Um, in the team uh, at first, but yeah, I mean, over the years, it's such a like huge part of the city and the culture here. And we've had some rough years, but there's hope now. <laughs> but Yana, right? Man, yeah. Man, what a, what a phenom. And are the breakfast tacos all they're cracked up to me? The breakfast tacos? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. That actually may be more of an Austin thing that I may be getting confused. I know San Antonio too, but maybe it's more of an Austin thing. Oh, I don't I mean, want to start anything. I don't want to start. It's both. You know, I'm I'm biased towards San Antonio's yeah. breakfast tacos, but. <laughs> well, so I don't actually, I don't actually know where you grew up. I'd love to know about where you grew up or one place or multiple places and kind of your, um, your reading and writing life, especially growing up. Sure. So um, I grew up in Pennsylvania. Um, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is a kind of small town about an hour north of Philadelphia. And um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was always kind of drawn toward the arts um, as a young kid, but I was not a big reader. Um, Uh And, uh, you know, my parents really tried to kind of encourage me to read all the classics and, you know, and and all of that type of stuff. And I just was not um, interested. even through high school, I was not like a huge reader. Um, I read like a little bit of fantasy, um, but I was just not, you know, I was much more into like film and music and and visual art. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I went to college, I, that's when I really became interested in in reading. And it was like, I remember it was like a short story course that I took my freshman year of college um, on the American short story. And, you know, we kind of went through going all the way back to like Nathaniel Hawthorne and stuff. And then we kind of followed the form all the way up to like contemporary short stories. And I remember like reading those contemporary short stories in kind of like the final unit of the course. And I was just, um, I had never read anything like that. And I just loved these stories. And, you know, pretty soon I was checking out the best American short stories and reading all these anthologies of stories. And then if I liked a story in an anthology, I'd find the collection in the library. And um, I just became a huge reader. And I mean, it's interesting. It's like reading is probably my favorite thing to do. Um, It's what I love to do most when I have the time, but it really didn't start till college. I was kind of a late bloomer. Man, that short story class at college is like the pipeline, huh? Many of us, I think, have been radicalized, you know? Yeah. 
that class kind of changed everything for me. Um, that was, that was the beginning. And, you know, it's interesting. I kind of, I fell in love with like the short story form first and yeah. that kind of led to like a desire to try it out myself. Yeah. Who, who were some of those writers? What were some of the texts that were, I guess, overstating and say life-changing for you? Yeah. I remember, um, one I remember was the Joyce Carroll story. Where are you going? Where have you been? Oh man, what a great one! <laughs> oh, what a great one! And that story just kind of blew my mind. That was one I remember reading in that class. Um, we read, you know, uh, Ann Beatty, I think, um, Lori Moore, um, uh, Richard Bausch, maybe um, Raymond Carver, um, Richard Ford, people like that. Um, Amy Hempel, I remember. And, you know, it's just kind of like a lot of the writers who were popular at that time or, or had recently been popular. And um, yeah, I mean, it was like these people were, were writing in this really conversational style. Um, they were just writing about the contemporary world. And, um, you know, I, I'd never seen fiction or at least short fiction that kind of was doing that and it, it really blew my mind mm. yeah, i want to say arnold friend was he the person from the where are you going where right. i know i still teach that story yeah <laughs> scary right scary not in a horror way but just scary i remember him not fitting into his boots quite well and right, right. And just kind of not quite playing the part and and you know people smarter than i saying you know maybe it's you know represented he's represented with like the devil or you know all kinds of things like that and um but yeah, just building fear, but again, not like a slasher horror type thing, right? Right. Yeah. It's just, but it's like just this incredibly suspenseful story that that has a lot of layers to it. And uh -huh. as you're saying, it can be read as like a parable. It can be read in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I remember like just reading that story and then discussing it in our class and being like, you know, there's so much in this this story and being really kind of excited by that. How, how do students react to it? They, they, yeah, they always love it. And we have a great discussion. I give them a, like a warning ahead of time. <laughs> I'm like, don't read this at night. And this is a little, might be a little scary. Um, but, you know, they love, you know, they see kind of a lot of that stuff in that they read it as a parable. They see Arnold friend as maybe the devil. Um, they're really interested to talk about kind of the way music works in that story, which is really interesting. Um, but it's always one of their favorites. That's one of the reasons I, I don't teach it every semester, but you know, I teach it um, fairly often. You know, I feel like sometimes the most, some of the scariest works are the ones like, like the O's piece where it's like, it's our world, but it's, you know, 10% different. Yeah. Right? right. There's something about the scariness of the reality of it, where it's, you know, like, like Arnold just trying to fit in, literally fit into his, shoes and just not quite with it and but he's not that far off right he's not like some demon or some monster maybe represent no, he's not he's just but there's something just a little bit off about him and he yeah. maybe seems to have some sort of supernatural powers but mm -hmm. there are things that can also be explained away so it's yeah it's i think that's what's kind of a little bit scary about it who, who are you reading these days whether with your students or on your own who's really um you know, wowing you and challenging you. I got really into uh, Rachel Cusk in in the past year or so, and and reading um, the Outline trilogy, and those books have really been important to me. I, I felt like I feel like I'm kind of late coming to them, and and but I just um, those books, you know, and thinking about kind of recent influences have been huge. Um, Annie Renault, I really like. Um, is another writer I kind of like have discovered more recently. And mm -hmm. um, I think of other people this semester, I've had like no time to read. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I'm trying to think yeah. back, like what was I reading this summer? Right. Recent collections that that I've really liked. I, I really like Jamal Brinkley's Witnesses. Witness. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I really enjoy that collection. Probably a lot of standalone stories, huh? Yeah, I mean, mm. and and I always kind of get excited to read 
the best American short stories and the Henry Prize stories. And those anthologies have been like sitting on my desk all semester. <laughs> and I just like can't wait till the semester's over right. so I can come to them. Uh, I wonder kind of about the the switch to become a writer where, you know, those first compliments you got, the, you know, the first person you respected, well, you respect a lot of people, but the first person you respected who really thought your work was, was mind bending or great or, you know, uh, how much of it was just you realizing kind of a satisfaction with you being able to, to write a dang good story. How did that kind of work where you became kind of a later reader, as you said, into saying, I can do this myself for, for a living even maybe. Yeah, well, I took, you know, I took a kind of intro fiction writing class and I had a really kind of warm and encouraging fiction writing professor. Um, and his name was Dean Crawford and he was just, you know, so nice. And he was like the first person who really saw something. I don't know what he saw, but he was encouraging to me. And I remember him saying, you should really take another fiction writing class. Um, and so I did. And, and then I took a class with the professor who had kind of become my mentor as an undergraduate, um, David Wong Louie. Um, and he was teaching at Vassar College where I, I was at the time. And he later went on to UCLA. But um, I mean, he was hugely influential and he really, all, he, he really, I guess, saw something in the work or was, was encouraging. And, and I was also kind of like desperate to hear someone <laughs> um, seeing something in the work. So part of it was maybe coming from me, but um, I used to meet with him all the time. And I just have memories of like um, him meeting me like on a Saturday morning and going through stories with me. I can't believe now like that he did that. But, um, you know, he was just such a huge and important influence. Yeah. They're the one you're talking about who put out who put himself out so much for you that was david wong louis as well who meet with you on a saturday and stuff like that yeah he was the one wow. who who was who was definitely like my biggest kind of um yeah. influence at so cool age. so cool the most recent collection of course that we're going to talk about mainly is called the disappeared the collection of short stories remind me again please when it when it came out that came out in april right so it's fairly new I wonder what kind of feedback you've gotten from um, from readers. I wonder if uh, any of your students have read it, either with you giving a little nudge, nudge, or just you know even just mentioning that you wrote it. Or um, yeah, just some of the feedback. And I wonder if any of your students have read maybe some some of the individual stories or the whole collection. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, the feedback has been nice so far um, from readers. And my students, you know, I did a re like the launch reading um, on campus. And uh, and so a lot of my students at that time came to it as well as just kind of other students. And so, yeah, that's kind of nice. They they have read it, um, a, a number of them. And, um, and in some cases, students that I've never had as students and, you know, that come to just kind of talk to me. And, and yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. You know, again, congratulations on the collection. It's I'm, I'm, I'm a huge, huge, huge short story fan. Like you talked about, I mean, the whole ethic, so much of the ethic of this podcast is based on, you know, Tobias Wolf's short stories and he who should not be lame. The, the writer from uh, the Pacific Northwest who unfortunately has gotten himself in some trouble, you know, just some of these short story collections, uh, Antonio Nelson, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, Morgan Talty more, you know, on the current and Jonathan Escoffrey. Your your collection is I was telling you before we start recording, just like the endings. I love endings. I love endings that are that make you think, that that make you reflect. They're not necessarily explosive endings all the time in your stories, but man, do they make you think. But you know, right off the bat, this the first story is called Austin. And um, you know, there's so many stories in the collection where it's um, you know, a man of a certain age, um, you know, maybe 40, mid-40s kind of thing. And in this case, he's he's what visit he's had like at a party for like kind of like old friends, and right away, um, in the story they talk about a friend of a friend. Remind me of the narrator's name in the story, Austin. I, I don't <laughs> know that he, even named. I don't know that he's named. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Right. So anyway, I, so he he has a you know his friend friend of a friend named Callan, and the you know the boys are kind of around the fire or whatever having a beer, and Callan talks about he had a 
uh, sorry, Callan's friend says, you know, he was recently at his home. There was an intruder there. They kind of go back and forth on the age. Seems like the intruder is maybe 15, 16. And this whole idea of the, the, the urge kicking in to protect. And he kind of he slammed the kid's head against the, the wall kind of thing and killed him. And it was like, oh, my God. And they were discussing this. And it becomes one of those. And I don't know about you. I hate being pulled into minor conversations where, you know, people, you know, like, what would you do? What if you were on an island? You had 10 <laughs> albums. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to answer. Can I not answer? This is a really serious one. And it's like, what would you do? Especially as men, it's like, would you protect that, the roost and blah, blah, blah. After that story, you know, he goes inside. He gives some sort of excuse, like he's going to get a beer or whatever. And he just, he leaves. And there's a sort of malaise. There's a sadness. There's a depression that really goes over him because of that story. I wonder about starting the collection. I wonder about that inciting incident, right? Which was the 15-year-old intruder. I wonder what it was about that that sent the narrator in such a tailspin. Yeah, you know, I think it was just kind of like, the friends who are talking about the story seem unaffected by, like, they're not seeing necessarily the sadness in it, right? They're talking about it just kind of objectively. You know, this is an interesting ethical dilemma, right? Um, where he's affected by what the the emotional reality of it, right? And one of the big differences between him and his friends is that, you know, his friends are still childless and he has children now and how that changes the way you might feel about that type of incident. Like he's thinking about this intruder and, you know, him being somebody's son, right? And him just being like a, I don't know, 15 or 17 year old kid. I forget what I, I said in the story. And um, that kind of affects him in a way that it doesn't seem to be affecting his friends. And it's, it's that that makes him not want to kind of return to the conversation as he, I think he, it's realizing how different he is now from his friends. But, you know, the ending there, I don't know that it's a, a spoiler or anything, but the last line is so good. It's, he checks the text. I feel like he, okay, so, you know, the narrator has, he's asked by his wife, who's also in that malaise from the party and everything like that. She thinks there's a robber and intruder at their house. So he's in that mindset, like, I got to go check it out. But I, I, it kind of sounds like maybe the message came in a few hours later, like one of those delayed messages. He looks at his text message and his quote from the friend from the party. Well, what happened to you, buddy? Where did you go? And obviously there's double meaning, triple meaning there. <laughs> that really just resonates as the story ends. second story is called cigarettes it's a really short one it's i don't know two pages maybe so much in this collection about like reclaiming the old days and the older i get the better i was and those type of you know that type of idea and you know basically about like trying to reclaim the taste of cigarettes and once he does he's like dang it why did i do that i haven't had a cigarette in i don't know four years more than that and once right. he does it's like nope am i wrong to kind of read in this idea of like trying to reclaim the past and, and it's not there i wonder what, what's going on with the cigarettes there yeah i mean i think kind of like we we're just talking about with with austin i mean it, it's it's um the cigarettes are kind of a symbol of a younger age Perfect. when you know the idea of death and and all of the things that can happen from smoking are kind of far from your mind <laughs> and um and and yeah, when you're kind of maybe a little bit more reckless, right? Um, and hey, speak for um, yourself. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and, speak for all of us. Yes, yes. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's what they symbolize is kind of like a younger version of of yourself. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these narrators in these stories are kind of having to come to terms with the fact that they're no longer that younger self. Oh, man, I, I'm saying this on the night before I'm about to play in the uh, students versus faculty basketball game at our high school. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I stupidly, I'm, I mean, I'm glad I did it, but I stupidly decided to get my my vaccine last night. So I'm still sore today. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm 43, so everything's got to go perfectly. Right. I got to be in shape and not play too much. You know, anyway, one of the following stories is called Vines. One of my favorites, a little bit on the longer side one with, you know, we have the narrator and Maya and they're, they're a couple. 
and Maya is an artist, a visual artist. She finds a studio, and so they move in together. Lionel, so they're probably what, maybe mid, mid to late 20s at the time? Yeah, like, something like that. Yeah. Lionel is, you know, maybe early 60s. Seems like he's had some success out there in the art world. He puts up the studio for her. He has this kind of a weird relationship with Caroline, who's, you know, young and beautiful. And, you know, the question is kind of like, are you, are they dating? Are they a couple? Is she just the, the model? Um, those type of things. You have so many interesting, like, uh, like triangles. And they're not all love triangles throughout the book, even squares, I guess. Right. There's, you know, so many people involved in these relationships. Um, I, the ending again was so muted or, or soft, but I just love the idea of, it comes up in the story so much. There's this period of life where for Maya, right, art was everything. And she finally got, um, you know, she started to get some cre- some some publicity and move out from Texas to, to San Francisco, I want to say. Art was everything. And then we find out later in the story, um, you know, things that happened in her life where it just wasn't. It went from 100% of her life, you know, 95% of her life to nothing. And even years later, when the narrator sees Caroline, it's just as if those days that were, you know, when we're young and everything matters so much. I just wonder about that balloon kind of being deflated, if you will, where such and such in your life, in this case, art, is just everything. And then with aging, with, with parenting, with marriage, it just isn't. Yeah. And I think that happens to a lot of people, you know, and, and, you know, where art is kind of everything in their life and then certain things happen in their life um, and their priorities change. Right. Um, And with that, in the case of, you know, Maya, you know, she, she gets sick, you know, she has a cancer scare and that, you know, affects her so profoundly that she kind of becomes a different person afterward and wants different things. Um, And that was kind of interesting to me um, to explore as someone who would have such a kind of profound event in their life that it could make them possibly give up the thing that they, that had defined them when they were younger. Um, And so she's, you know, kind of a model of a particular type of artist who has that type of experience. Mm-hmm. And then there's someone like Lionel, right, who's the older artist who whose better days are kind of behind him, but who's somewhat estab- established enough, right? Sure. Um, and then you have Caroline, who's this kind of the young superstar who just has the natural gifts and who's like super young and already kind of showing in galleries and stuff. And yeah, I don't know. In that story, I wanted to present kind of different versions of the artistic life um, and uh, just kind of put them together and and let them play off each other. Yeah. So, you know, art and creativity are are definitely themes throughout. Um, There's a story called Simply Cello. Natalie is narrated by Natalie's husband, and Natalie is a cello virtuoso. She has been. I mean, when the narrator met her in college, she was already, you know, established and on her way. And she begins to get possibly, you know, the shaking, right? Possibly Parkinson's. Remind me of, I want to say it's ET or ES. What was the other possible diagnosis? Yeah, I think ET, like essential tremor, I think. Right. Um, yeah, that's a possibility. It's kind of, I wanted that to be ambiguous, um, you know, what's actually going on with her, but it's it's obviously a big deal, right? Sure. I mean, as as the story goes on, as the story ends, it doesn't end, right? It, it keeps going in our mind because it's like, oh man, what's happening a day later, a year later? The idea is that it is degenerative. Again, we don't know exactly what it is, but it's most likely degenerative and it's not going to get better. And she tries to prepare her husband for the worst. He doesn't want to hear it. The story ends with something to the effect of that he's waiting for her to let him in physically. Obviously, there are other significant other significance there. Aging, as we talked about, is clearly a theme. There's a one story called Chili, and it's this older woman who is so, so proud of her peppers. And it describes her, it describes the pepper um, as basically so full of heat that it could kill you. Um, you know, I really see that as this is this is already an older woman. She was in her 70s or 80s. But I, before she got sick, I really see that as just, uh, you know, her kind of at her height, her at her highest of potential. And it's like, 
look at this dang thing. But just like everyone else, we get old, we get sick. Was there a particular chili that inspired you, possibly? <laughs> I like I like uh, chili peppers. You know, um, one of the things I was doing in this book was I was trying to put things in the book that kind of that I like about that I associate with this area of the country mm. and with San Antonio uh, and Austin specifically. Um, but also things that I just, I like, you know? Um, and so um, with those shorter pieces, um, you know, there's the short kind of flash pieces are mixed in with these longer stories. And that's one of the shorter pieces. Um, those just kind of grew out of me kind of doing little prompts based on different things that I associated with um, like San Antonio or Austin. And so like, there's a story called Limes, there's a story called sure. Chile story called Pozole, right? And mm -hmm. so that's, you know, that story just kind of grew out of, um, yeah, just kind of my love of chili peppers in, in general. I don't I don't know that I have a favorite. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if money were not an option, if money were not an issue, would you go green Pozole or red Pozole? Oh, green. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. I do like, I prefer green, yeah. No, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> and I was just, I'm just thinking of, I mean, have you ever been around a pepper that was so hot that you had to use like gloves for it? Yeah, I've had some hot peppers. I mean, I've had peppers that are like, um, just, it's, it's, there's no pleasure in eating them. Sure, it's, sure. It's just pure pain. <laughs> Going along with the theme of aging, there was a series, and you know, I'm 43 now, but I feel like it's probably been at least 10 years. So I wasn't quite to that age, but I love that series. It was called Men of a Certain Age. You ever happen to watch Ray Romano and hey, yeah, the guy from I want to say the guy from Brooklyn Precinct. I'm uh, not and Andre something Corbin. Anyways, really good series, but like I felt like I, I related to it even though I wasn't quite to that age yet. Men of a certain age, right? This this 40s we might have called middle age back then. So I, I think that Richard from the story Rhinebeck and Rebecca and David, who are a couple, they're kind of around that age. And there's, again, kind of a love triangle, kind of, but it's, you know, Rebecca and David and Richard just like tags along with them basically everywhere they go, right? New York City to kind of sounds like maybe upstate New York or a little bit more in the suburbs, possibly down to Austin, Texas, you know, Rebecca and David run their restaurants. Richard seems to be almost the glue that holds that marriage together. I wonder what you were doing with Richard there is he is he a rival to David in Rebecca's you know his eyes how would you describe David, Richard's piece in there yeah well he is right he's kind of a third wheel to their relationship right and and has been since they were all friends in college right and then as you said they moved to New York after college and they kind of um their lives are entwined then and then he moves up to Rhinebeck with them as well and he's kind of in a way been following him following them but they've also been wanting him to follow them like he's in a strange way like part of their relationship mm -hmm. and so i was just kind of interested in that type of situation i think you know it's it there are people who are kind of um like a third wheel to a relationship but like kind of close very close friends with both people yeah. in it so that to to a sort of extreme degree mm -hmm. Um, where he had separate friendships with each of them, but then also with them as a couple, and they kind of needed him in a in a strange way. And so it was this weird codependency. Yeah. I was just interested in that and interested in like what happens when there's a kind of foreseeable end to that, and how does that affect all three of them? If you want to get me, what's the word? Just emotionally, if you want to hit me in the heart, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a flashback. My favorite movie scene of all time is the Godfather Part Two, the last scene. <laughs> yeah, right? the scene at the dinner table, Pearl Harbor Day. Something about the juxtaposition about when things are rough, and then you go back to a good time, to an innocent time, and you so uh, so deftly, D E F T L Y, you so deftly do that with the with the ending of that story, where there's they go back to a where Richard goes back to a pretty simple, you know, at the time it wasn't a big deal, something they did on a regular basis, but brings them back to a, a younger, more innocent time. And that just definitely tears on the heartstrings. Yeah, I mean, that that story, like, 
I struggled with the ending for that for a long time because I was just, I was not sure how to end it. And I knew like it was, it was very sad kind of where he ends up at the end of the story. And I was like, I don't want it like just it to be a total Hmm. down at the end. I wanted there to be some light. And so it took me a while to figure out that I should go into a memory at the end. Yeah. You nailed it. I think I mixed the metaphors there. I said, you tear at the heartstrings, tug at the heartstrings. There you go. Right. So again, I don't know if you call it a theme or but or some sort of motif, but like a lot of in-betweeners. There's there's Jimena, which is maybe the longest story in the collection, one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimena is a younger woman, maybe 24, 25. She lives downstairs from the narrator and his wife. And right off the bat, you know, some of the effect of like Jimena, I'm not saying exactly correctly, but Jimena came between me and my wife, but it wasn't a literal thing. You know, it wasn't that, well, you'll, I mean, the reader will see, but it wasn't that there was cheating necessarily. Um, but, you know, the wife seems, the wife right off the bat is jealous of her or cautious around her. I don't know how else to say it. You know, some, she says something like, doesn't she make you feel old sometimes? This is Carly, the wife. And so again, that obviously plays into the aging thing. It's not like she's, you know, 15 where it's like, oh, she's so young and sweet, or she's four and she's young and sweet. She's not that far from their age. I think that's a big part of it. Maybe it's not like it's that hard for them to remember what it was like. Right. Right. And she's a kind of, she's a mirror of that kind of younger version of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if you could maybe talk about Jimena a little bit more, whether the story or the woman herself and kind of um, hers and in between her, her is like you said, a mirror and a younger version. Yeah. And that, that story too is in some ways a kind of mirror of, of, um, of Rhinebeck and also Vines. Like I I was doing a lot of that type of thing, but in this case, we're, we're, we have the perspective of someone in the relationship as opposed to kind of more of the third wheel type character. Um, but I just thought how interesting, you know, to have a situation where two people have kind of separate close friendships with this one person, but they never, all three of them hang out together. You right. Know, so, and, um, and how, again, they both become kind of dependent on that relationship with the third person mm-hmm. and don't really talk about it with each other. So it's this kind of private thing. And they're both kind of devastated when when she leaves in different ways. Um, and that she seems to kind of fulfill something for each of them that they're not getting in the marriage, right? Yeah. Even though it's not a it's not a romantic thing, really. I mean, it's there's like, you know, a tinge of that maybe, but it's more about a different type of closeness. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I just what you're saying about having kind of their own relationships and not the three of them together reminds me too of the last story with Antoinette, the last story, which is the title story and how they have Antoinette and the, the narrator, you know, have those little meals together um, as they're, you know, kind of hiding out from, the world after you know after the death and everything like that 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 happens with with uh what daniel but um but yeah just like that kind of weird relationship there's maybe some you know tension or sexual tension or romantic thing but it's a very weird place to say the least but yeah just having that relationship and then him checking back in with his wife or his girlfriend at the time not necessarily he's doing anything wrong just kind of that that netherworld right right and you know that i just that story in a strange way is also a kind of mirror, like a triangulation, even though Daniel is dead, mm-hmm. right? They they are, or I guess they don't know he's missing. Don't know. <laughs> but sure. um it, they, they presume he's dead. Mm-hmm. They are bonded simply by the fact that they're closeness to him, right? So it's mm-hmm. a kind of it, it's similar in that way. And and that was another thing I thought would be interesting to explore. Like two people who really have nothing in common other than one of the closest most important people in their life sure has disappeared yeah this is gonna be the title of my my next book my first book men unmoored is what i wrote down there's a lot of men unmoored in the book one of the flash pieces is called the empty unit and manuel is the landlord seems like you know they don't know him too well he listens to his music and seems like he's maybe mourning 
the loss of his wife, maybe in a divorce, you know, the music kind of, uh, you know, traces his journey with her. But, you know, for at least a short time, he seems to be unmoored in some ways, right? It's like the music is mourning. We talked about David from from Ryan Beck, Daniel as well. Daniel seemed like he was, nothing wrong with it, but it seemed like he was on the older side to, to kind of be doing the, like, adventure sports. I don't know. That's safe to right. say. He was, right, he was kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, he was, right, he was doing lots of hikes and things that maybe at his age he, he shouldn't have been doing. I mean, I'm not like a, a hiker and a big thing like that, but it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, it's also like, hey, good for him. You know, you could talk about it being unmoored. You could talk about being a sense of freedom, right? Just depends how you look mm -hmm. at it. Art. You talked about your um, your background with art. There are many painters in the collection. There's the cellist, the narrator of The Disappeared, I think teaches music class, music theory, maybe? Art. I think he teaches drawing, yeah. Drawing. He's, he's an artist, a visual artist. Art, right. In Amena, he's an aspiring filmmaker, right? Yeah. Right, right, right. So I just wonder about art and just the need, I don't know, the human need to to create. There are so many people who really, and like I said, in the collection, just really just do love for the, live for their art when, I want to say Natalie, right, the cellist, it's 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 a mourning, it's a, it's a sort of death, right, where she sees the end in year, the end near and it's pretty dang close where she's not going to be able to play to the level that she wants to. I just wonder about how, about the idea of muses and creativity and how that plays into the collection. Yeah, well, I wanted to, I mean, art is a big theme in almost all of the stories. And, and as I was saying before, I wanted to present different versions of the artistic life and artists at different ages with different levels of success. Um, and just to have different representations of that type of life and the type of conflicts that exist in that type of life. Yeah. Um, but also, I think because this the the book is so much about our relationship to past versions of ourselves, I thought having art, I feel like artists um, tend to to really be kind of in dialogue or or thinking a lot about past versions of themselves because of the fact that they associate that those versions of themselves with different artistic periods or you know, um, musical periods or, or, or writing periods, right? And you kind of think of your life sometimes that way. And um, and so it seemed particularly kind of appropriate for the book. Do you, is art a restorative practice for you in your life? Are you, oh, makes the jokes about writers, like, oh, I hate writing, but they still write. Torturous, do you, is writing or some other sort of art a restorative thing for you? Yeah, it's not, I don't find it, um, I did when I was younger. It was painful sometimes, um, but at this at this age, like I'm so hungry for free time. Yeah. You know, when I get it, I'm just like it's just pleasure, and for the most part, it's not a lot of anguish. Um, I was probably at my most anguished when I had all the time in the world, <laughs> like right. in graduate school and stuff where I had nothing else that I was supposed to be doing. Right. And, and you know, that's when I was like probably the most miserable. But no, I, I mean, at this age, like at this point, I just, you know, I love the daily pleasure of it. Of course, there are frustrations and there are days that things don't go so well and there are issues and that you have to work out sometimes in particular stories. But I just, I wouldn't call it painful at all at this point. Do you have kids? I do. I have two children. Yeah. A daughter and a son. Obviously, you are not the narrators of the stories, but I, I would figure. Um, fatherhood with myself having two. I'm sorry, tell me the ages again. You said. Oh, my. So my daughter is 11 and my son is eight um, at this point. But at the time I was writing these stories, they were younger. Right. Um, yeah. So that's why you see some younger. Mm -hmm kids in some of the stories yeah yeah i have seven and five so i not too far behind you but i but i, I could definitely identify with with the fathers in, in the collection the story is is called breathe it's a very moving very moving story very memorable story the the breathe comes from the 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 narrator of the fathers at a party and his son has a little you know little accident a little scare really no little scares when it comes to the water and drowning and all that right he falls in for a bit teenage girl comes and gets him he's fine really you know physically it's not really a big deal the father freezes i think when he sees his son in there and if he froze it was for 
a second and that's enough for someone else to step in. Did he, did he, did you kind of leave that ambiguous on purpose? Did he freeze because he was just kind of as so many different things going on in his mind? Did he freeze because he didn't know what to do? And does he feel, is he beating himself up because he, because it wasn't him saved his son? Yeah. He, you know, it's, it opens with him talking about these panic attacks he's been having since his son's been born. And in that moment, it's such an extreme thing. My, my thought was that he just froze out of anxiety. Like mm -hmm. he just, it was almost like a panic attack mm -hmm. that he had at that moment that, that prevented him from just like jumping in the pool after yeah. his son. And the son is rescued by like this teenage girl, um, you know, and, and he feels ashamed, you know, that he wasn't able to act. And, and that is that kind of, right. That inciting incident for that story, right. That kind of, gets things going definitely the, that that image that you paint the kid, he was okay and he was towed off and everything i think he was maybe taken into the house and it's just like the narrator is watching him as if he's as, as if it's not his own kid like, oh we got this kind of thing and there's something about that just yeah just freezing and again all it took was maybe a split second for him to freeze and there's all that and there's all that shame which brings more anxiety which brings like you said you know panic attacks it's all a cycle the the son is clearly pretty pissed at his father and and doesn't doesn't really hide it too much because he wasn't saved at the pool. He asked him he eventually asked him questions about that. The father's trying to break through to his son, trying to, you know, talk to him. I was also so struck by you know, you know, kids being so I don't know, fickles. I don't want it to have that negative of a connotation, but you know, fickle and those relationships there you write about how he makes a trip back east, the kid does with his mom. And he comes back and he's even more different. He's even more of a more attached to his mom and more distant from his father. Um, just their back and forth. I wonder about that 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 slippery grip we have on fatherhood, on motherhood, on parenthood, especially as kids regress and progress and all of that. Yeah. And you know, I wanted there to be this kind of like the father is a good father, right? And and he's actually a very like conscientious father and 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 worries yes. a lot and um but and and you know does tries to do everything for his son and yet the son still for some reason um is angry at him or has this kind of contempt for him that he doesn't understand right and i wanted you know there's the surface conflict with the son you know possibly having something wrong with him after this this incident and that was you know the kind of the, the the surface story that provided that tension but i was like there needs to be something else here and i thought it would be interesting if he wants to kind of care for his son and the son is resistant to that because of some sort of resentment he has or yes. just some phase he's going through right and um, something that the the father just cannot explain or understand, you know, and and so I thought that would be interesting too, where the son he wants he's so worried about his son, and the son is just very resistant to his help, at least initially. Definitely, this idea of just fleeting and the ephemera and like the ephemeral nature of the relationship between father and son, and the the ephemeral relationships, romantic relationships that go on where. They're so passionate, and then, it's, then there's nothing. It's so such an interesting part of this book. That last story, the the disappeared, the title one, without you know, giving away endings and stuff. But again, I love the last lines and just this idea of that fleeting moment or moments that Antoinette had with the narrator. Again, you know, talking about their lost loved one, and there's a line about something like fear. It was something like fear that we had to leave, and this idea that disappearing is not a an over and done it's a progressive thing but just this idea that so much of our lives are fleeting so much of our lives are fickle so much of our lives are evolving and, and devolving i wonder if there's that's something you kind of wanted to leave the reader with or what your kind of thoughts on this this idea of foo fighters ever long and this idea of ephemeral nature of i guess love life yeah you know that ending i saw is kind of like going back to the the question that that the first story raises, like, where did you go? Right. Mm. And, um, and that ending of like ha them having to accept that, um, 
like there's unanswered questions in that story. Like they don't know what's happening. Yeah. Their home, um, and yet they need to go on. They need to like, let it go. And what they've been doing that, you know, these few days where they're together, like packing up his house is they've been kind of living in the past. Right. And in this kind of, you know, just not really in reality. Right. And they're going through all this stuff. They're thinking about him. They're talking about him. And, you know, it's come to the end of their time and, and he has to leave and he has to face the fact that he has to kind of let that go. And so that's kind of, I wanted that story to kind of echo back to the first one, which is like, where did I go? Maybe I don't know, but I have to, I have to keep going. Like I have to, um, you know, you have to keep living, right. You know, and you can't, you can't just be stuck in the past you need to move forward with your life. And so at least that's in my mind, I was thinking of that. And um, Jimena also ends with that kind of, I wanted like the the, la the later stories in the book to be addressing that, the question that that first story mm -hmm. is, right? You know, um, I don't know where I heard, somewhere on a panel on short story collection orders, I heard some, I forget who said it, but someone on the panel said that, you know, the, the first story in a collection should sort of raise a question mm. and then the last story should in some way answer it. And I was thinking about that in ordering the collection and I wanted the later stories to be closer to kind of dealing, you know, answering that, that question. Wow. It was worth talking to you just for that, just for that little advice or just that idea. That's so cool. That's it's one of those where the stories on their own are 10 out of 10, but there's something about the alchemy of the collection and the order that you put it in and that question raised with the text message and the way that it ends like that. Uh, so, so cool. And even in that last story where this idea of the disappeared, where there doesn't seem to be, and again, there's so much ambiguity, there doesn't seem to be an, a bad actor or somebody who was, you know, stalking. I'm sorry, was it Dave? I'm sorry, what was the name of the guy who disappeared? Daniel. Daniel, excuse me. Right, it wasn't that he was violently killed. Maybe he wasn't, hopefully. You know, we don't know. I think of like in Spanish, you'll hear like he was disappeared, basically. Like it was somebody else did the disappearing of him. Right. When in this case, it seems like he just disappeared. More of this fleeting, more of like it just kind of happened without like a, a bad actor necessarily, which I thought was so interesting. You would be well within your rights to just kind of rest on your laurels with this incredible collection that was just so well done. But I wonder if maybe you have any um, anything you can share about any future projects. Yeah, um, I, I've been working on a novel um, uh, set in California, actually. Um, okay. Yeah, in in the eighties, um, and it's it's parts of it take place in Southern California. Um, and parts of it take place in, in the Bay Area. And um, yeah, and there's kind of two time frames to it. It's this kind of present day, but then there's, you know, kind of um, this storyline that takes place in, in the, the early 80s. And um, I started it during, you know, kind of the beginning of COVID. And um, like a lot of fiction writers like I didn't know what to write about during that time I just I yeah. knew I didn't want to write about COVID because right. um, I was living it but um I I uh I wanted to kind of escape to a happier place and for me like Southern California in the 80s yeah. <laughs> right you know, it was a kind of happy uh yeah. happy place yeah are we talking like cocaine field parties in the eighties? Are we talking like surf, surf what days <laughs> no, or world or no more kind of like young? It's it's from the you know uh, younger character at that time, so no cocaine, but uh, skateboarding. <laughs> you, okay, nice, nice, nice. You you seem to have you spent some time uh, um, time in California? You, you seem to you write very knowledgeably about it, seemingly to me. Yeah, I lived um, briefly in the Bay Area, and I lived in Southern California. I uh, my my family lives um, in in uh, uh, Orange County in Los Angeles, also, um, and I lived in L.A. Yeah. So yeah, I've lived I've I've lived a number of years in California, and I, I wish that I was still there sometimes. But yeah, um, <laughs> you, you probably went to Joshua Tree a couple times. 
I have not been. No, okay. that was, was yeah. I mean, um, I'm not really a huge like you know um, hiker or camper, but sure. um, uh, I know of it and yeah. I've kind of driven close to it. And um, you know, I kind of like uh, I don't know. I I in, for that story, I wanted that character of Daniel to be in a place that was was removed from Texas. You know, I wanted this to be and i've always heard just great things about joshua tree and how beautiful it is yeah what um where can we find you online and and you, know, you can buy the book anywhere it's called the disappeared tell us again uh, the publisher and maybe any particular bookstores where we could we could buy it yeah it's the publisher's Knopf, and um it's you know uh you know you should be able to find it in and you know independent bookstores and barnes and nobles and um and you know certainly online too yeah so and and as for me like you know i'm on twitter and i'm on instagram and 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 i have a website andrewporterwriter.com if you google me you'll find some of those things yeah, <laughs> yeah. well awesome to talk to you and to get into the brain a little bit about some of the rationale and and the the background of this this great collection thanks again i want to wish you great luck with your continued writing Thank you so much. It's been, you know, a delight talking to you. I'm a big fan of the the podcast and this was really a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode with Andrew Porter continued great luck to him in his career and with his important work thanks for listening to this episode you can now subscribe to the podcast on apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review you can also ask for it by name using alexa and find it on stitcher spotify and on amazon music on instagram follow me i'm chills at will podcast or on twitter i'm chills at will po1 Watch the Chills at Will podcast channel on YouTube. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. My last name is R-I-E-H-L. The page describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down, and the other song played is Hoops, instrumental by Matt Whitehour. Both songs are used through ArchesAudio.com. Please tune in for episode 214 with Leah Myers. Leah is a member of the Jamestown Skalalum Tribe of the Pacific Northwest, and she earned her MFA in creative nonfiction from the University of New Orleans, where she won the Samuel Mockbee Award for nonfiction two years in a row. Her debut memoir, Thinning Blood, is published by W.W. Norton and received a rave review in the New York Times. This episode airs on November 28th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Andrew Porter, whose work, like this disappeared, gives you chills at will.